Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I have a real treat for you today, and it involves our favorite flying mammals, the bats. Bats and plants interact in many different ways, and they are saving us billions of dollars across the globe. But I'm not the one that's best suited to tell you about that, and that is where our guest comes in. Joining us is Dr. Merlin Tuttle. Dr. Merlin Tuttle is widely recognized as the godfather of modern bat conservation. He most recently founded Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation, where he is currently and solely active since 2014. Merlin also founded and led Bat Conservation International for 30 years before leaving in 2009. Through Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation, he provides the world's finest bat photo gallery, the most up-to-date responses to exaggerated disease speculation, and much, much more. Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation is the only place to access his more than 60 years of unique experience and support his continuing efforts for bat conservation. It's a fascinating conversation, and it is only made possible through those of you who support this show. There are a lot of different ways you can do it, but one of the best is to pick up some of our customizable merch. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com and click on apparel at the top or navigate to our merch page in the show notes under each episode. Because again, conversations like this can't happen unless you support shows like In Defense of Plants. But that is entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this any longer. Merlin is an amazing proponent of bats and bat conservation, and he has a lot of cool bat plant facts to talk to us about today. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Merlin Tuttle. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Merlin Tuttle, it is an absolute honor to have you on the show today. For those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. I'm Merlin Tuttle, and I've been studying bats for almost 65 years in something like 40 countries on every continent where they exist, often surrounded by millions at a time in caves. I've photographed hundreds of species, uh, have thousands of photos of them on my website, if you want to learn more about bats, try my website. Fantastic. And I will put up links for those so that people can find it easily. But, you know, it's interesting to have a bat expert on the podcast. If you grew up like I did, you think of bats, you think of insect eaters. But bats and plants across the globe have fascinating interdu- uh, interactions with each other, do they not? Absolutely. And so one of the most important ones, obviously, would be pollination. And again, I grew up in the Northeast, so for me, pollination in bats seems a little confusing, but it's, it's pretty broad, the amount of plants they interact with in a pollination sense, correct? Most people are amazed to find that bats are by far the most efficient pollinators that exist. They carry more pollen farther than any other pollinating animal. That's absolutely remarkable. And I mean, when it comes to genetic diversity for plants, at least, that distance that they're flying, it's super important. And so when you say distance, uh, how far are we talking? Are there estimates for different species? Not for a lot, because frankly, the vast majority of bats have never been studied enough to have any idea why they're valuable or what they need or what their status is. That's the sad thing about bats. They're terribly neglected, except when it comes to telling stories that exaggeratedly to scare people about potential disease, but relative to how far they go, studies done in Northern Mexico have shown that uh, long-nosed bats may cover more than 60 miles in a night. 
dang, that is a lot for a plant, especially when, you know, some of the other stuff is a few meters. But when it when we think about like you mentioned Mexico, for instance, uh, a lot of my listeners are in North America. Are there bats in North America outside of Mexico, for instance, like in the United States that are pollinating plants? Yes, uh, two species of longnose bats enter the U.S. One comes in and pollinates uh, agaves and probably some other plants in uh, extreme southern Texas. And uh, there are two species, one genus Leptonectris and the other one Chironectris that uh, come into Arizona and extreme southern California. And there they pollinate both agave and columnar cacti. Excellent. And when a bat is visiting a flower, is it looking for pollen? Is it looking for nectar? Like what is in it? How are, how are plants attracting bats to pollinate their flowers? Well, there are many different ways. Uh, the bat may be looking for nectar. It may be looking for pollen. And it may have a whole different approach. Uh, the Freycinetia leona vines in the Pacific Islands reward the bat by producing fleshy bracts that taste like fruit. Hmm. And the bat eats those but gets his face covered with pollen <laughs> while he's doing it. And there's even a bat that I have yet to document and photograph, but I heard a lot about it when I was in Ivory Coast years ago. Botanists there were telling me that there's a uh, apparently a tiny insect eating bat that uh, lives in flowers. There's a beetle that burrows a small hole into this sizable flower before it fully opens. And then there's this little tiny bat that goes in that hole and lives there and probably becomes an efficient pollinator because he's going in and out all the time. <laughs> uh there, there's a lot yet to be learned about <laughs> bats and pollination. That's remarkable. So for any uh, future grad students listening, lots of fodder there for research. But, you know, bats, the other thing I think about is sonar. And sometimes the relationships for pollination come with unique structures that bats can cue in on that are, are really truly tuned to bat sonar in certain areas, right? Oh, yes. Uh, in... 2014, I believe it was the April issue of National Geographic, I had an article about bats that, uh, well, plants that reflect bat echolocation signals to guide bats into the right places in the flowers. And uh, while we were doing that photography, a colleague of mine actually did experiments that led to uh, a breakthrough for guidance systems for robotic vehicles. Wow. Uh, they were having a hard time figuring out how to get robotic vehicles to read signs. And uh, they figured a, what I think was considered to be a breakthrough uh, based on what plants were doing to guide bats. Huh. That's remarkable. And it just goes to show you that you never know what's coming out of science for the sake of science, especially natural history science. Obs observations can lead to remarkable things and they can have impacts all over the globe that sometimes can make our society hopefully better and more efficient in the long run. Well, I, I give you such 
an incredible variety of approaches. Like, for example, there's a, a plant, Puya, genus Puya. It's found in the Andean Paramo. And up where that plant lives, it's way too cold for bats to live up there. Huh. I mean, it's like an area where it's probably permafrost. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, this plant takes a hundred years to become mature and flower. And when it does, it only flowers for one season and then it dies. Hmm. So pollination must be damned important. Yeah. <laughs> well, it relies somewhat on hummingbirds, but apparently largely on bats for pollination, bats that can't live up there. Hmm. So what happens is the bats live down in the warm tropical, subtropical valleys way down many thousands of feet below. But in the evening, they apparently ride thermals to get up very efficiently to visit these flowers, which provide a rich wow. uh, food source. That's absolutely amazing. And again, it's one of these things where like a lot of this is going on at night, often out of sight, out of mind, which kind of goes back to what you were saying. Imagine what more is out there to be discovered of like this or, or wildly different. And much of what we think we know about pollination <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for example, when I was photographing for the same National Geographic article uh, in Cuba, there's a, what we call, what I call the echo vine. And uh, this inflorescence hangs down on a stem and uh, then flowers open in a circle around the bottom. And each one is shaped like a Grecian urn. Hmm. And they fill with, nectar large quantities of nectar but the anthers and stigma are up above and they're far enough above that just anything can't put its head in there and get pollen on it uh hummingbirds go to it big time all day long you see hummingbirds i one day went up and photographed 400 pictures of hummingbirds going wow. to that flower <laughs> it's bright red and hummingbirds go to it big time so everybody thought it was hummingbird pollinated but in all those 400 pictures i didn't have a single one in which i could see that the hummingbird's head touched the anthers to get mm. pollen on mm -hmm. but when night came it was found that uh the bat's heads were big enough to fill the gap. And when the bat would go in, when he'd come out, he'd be all coated with pollen. <laughs> Amazing. I love that. And yeah, it just goes to show you the amount of hours and timing that you have to have to, to make this sort of work possible, to truly get to the bottom of what is truly pollinating a plant. It's not easy work. And, and a lot of times it's staking out and taking photos at, at odd hours of the day. Well, uh, a lot of what we think is pollination is theft. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of thieves out there that like to tank up for free. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's all uh, take as much as possible, give as little in return. <laughs> <laughs> Very fun. And and I'm assuming, you know, is there a, a, a sex difference between male and female bats? Like, is do we know enough to say for some species, are females visiting more? Is it something to do with breeding, offspring, that sort of thing? Uh, I don't know of any literature to that effect. 
we do know that many assume to be totally nectivorous bats during whole seasons are predominantly insect eaters. Mm. So multiple services possible, but more work needed for sure. Well, even hummingbirds, I've seen slow motion pictures of them big time catching little things <laughs> like fruit flies. That's fun. <laughs> little precision instruments there. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And so the other side of this, obviously, is once plants are pollinated, there's a whole seed dispersal component. And that's another one that kind of blew my mind when I learned it. Bats are really important seed dispersers in many areas around the globe. Well, if you were to go to my website and look under YouTube videos, you find a video that we shot there a few months ago in Zambia showing the migration of 10 million straw-colored fruit bats. Wow. And these bats each weigh perhaps three quarters of a pound and they eat double their weight in fruit or nectar every night. Whoa. It's, it's kind of, I think, a myth that bats are either fruit or nectar eaters. Sure. All the bats I know of that are fruit eaters eat nectar when it's available and nectar eaters eat fruit when it's available. Uh, they may dominantly eat one versus the other, but they're not too many of them refuse the other. But anyway, these uh, straw-colored fruit bats, with each one eating twice its body weight in food a night, the numbers of seeds dispersed by these bats during an annual migration are astronomical. <laughs> I, I had the number where I could repeat easily, but it was such a big number, I didn't think anybody would believe it, <laughs> so I quit repeating it. I love uh, that. But it... it there's no question that it's millions of tons of seeds annually that they're dispersing during their migrations across thousands of kilometers of mid-Africa. Mid yeah, and I mean, going back to what you mentioned earlier about pollination and distance, I mean, seed dispersal, that's a distance game. And if bats are flying great distances, that's a lot of movement of, of propagules for these plants. It's how they get around the landscape. Yeah, these bats are migrating across thousands of kilometers of equatorial Africa. Yeah, that's absolutely remarkable to think of the implications of just, like you said, numbers that almost seem fake. <laughs> They're so and, and the crazy thing is, people don't see it because it's happening at nighttime. And if one of these bats happens to eat a fruit off of a fruit tree in your yard, then, then people yell big time that the bats are a scourge, but uh, they don't see what... In fact, a lot of times when they're accused of eating fruits that we want, they're only eating fruits from trees that they planted originally anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, half the work is already done by them. You might as well give them the credit instead of maligning them. And that's, I think, a big problem is that they only see the negative sides because it's a sliver of what they're actually witnessing. Yeah. Like, you know, the force wouldn't be there in many cases if it wasn't for seed dispersers like bats. Well, another issue that I find very important that needs to get out there uh over large areas of the world bats are still big time persecuted by fruit growers who think they damage crops wow but uh many years ago when i was doing a different kind of research in kenya i kept every time i'd ask somebody about bat caves i'd hear about what a scourge fruit bats were that they got people's uh mangoes Ugh. So I decided to do a bit of research on this myself while I was there. And I contacted the biggest mango grower in, in Kenya and asked permission to 
follow his harvesters and look at damage and see where it was coming from. And he just laughed at me and said, you say you're a bat researcher? Why? How is it you don't know that these bats aren't, aren't a problem? Why are you wasting time trying to show this? I said, that's because you're the first person I've met in Kenya that knows better. <laughs> but when I followed his harvesters, what what he explained was that, and, and, and we, as soon as I explain this, you'll see how obvious it is, to harvest a commercially viable mango, you've got to pick it at least a week before it's ripe. Mm. I mean, it's got to get shipped around the world, sit in the store for a few days, and you can't wait until it's dead ripe to harvest it if you're going to commercially sell it. Right. And so what I did was I followed the uh, pickers, and every time they had to put a mango aside for damage, I would examine it to see who had bitten into it, what had happened. And what I found was that it was very easy. I've got photographs showing the differences. Very easy to see the difference between a bush baby bite and a monkey bite and a bat bite. The bats would hang onto the fruit head down and eat into it from the bottom and you'd get vertical scratch marks on the outer skin of the mm -hmm. mango from where they had hung on it. The monkeys and bush babies would go for the upper part of it and just <laughs> take a bite and you could see where their, in, their paired incisors in the front would dig in and it was just clear as crystal who, who the culprits were. And it was only the monkeys and bush babies that went around checking to see if anything was ripe enough for them to eat and hmm. damaging a lot of them that they didn't eat. And what the grower explained to me was that the bats were only eating mangoes that were too ripe for commercial harvest that either ripen, you know, that all the fruit on a given tree doesn't ripen on the same day. Right. And so the fruit that ripened prematurely wasn't harvestable anyway. Hmm. And the fruit that the pickers missed wasn't going to be harvested because it would just rot on the tree. And he pointed out that those fruits that the pickers missed or that ripen prematurely become hosts where the fruit flies and fungi that are his real problem oh, feed. Wow. And he said the bats are actually helping the farmers by removing these fruits that would feed his worst pests. <laughs> the bats didn't eat them. And I even went so far as to go to a grocery store there, buy mangoes and other commercial fruit that wasn't quite ripe, but was ripe enough to be on sale in the store. Mm -hmm. And I put them in a walk-in studio of mine and left the bats there with the fruit and didn't come back until like two o'clock in the morning. And the bats <laughs> were starving by then. And the moment I walked in with ripe fruit, they were, you know, immediately coming right to my hand and grabbing it. Uh, and they hadn't touched the fruit that I'd bought that was on the green side that was still in the store. Wow. Amazing. And I think this kind of goes back to what you said about perception and being maligned. It's so easy to look at a bush baby or a monkey and go, oh, that's cute. They can't be the problem. But then look at a bat. That's something, you know, stories have been told, these tales are as old as probably humanity's telling stories. And, and you've got people just looking at them and going, well, of course they're the problem, but here really they're the friend of the farmer. 
Well, bats seem to be in trouble for having wings in part. Right. Uh, actually, the flying foxes are among the ones most hated for supposedly damaging crops. Oh. And uh, they're among the cutest bats out there. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, probably more than 100 species of them that are really, really cute that would compete with pandas. Sure. They're like little dogs. I always think of like little dog faces. It's just like you said, the wings probably add a different level to people's perceptions of them. But the other side of this too is, um, you know, I, of course, so many bats are nocturnal. How is light pollution affecting some of these relationships? I could imagine it, it, it's not good in many cases. A number of years ago, I was hired under contract to check out an area in another state where someone was thinking of putting in a big time night bat observation opportunity for the public. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was out checking it out, I'd be listening with a ultrasonic detector for bat activity and you'd hear bat feeding buzzes because they're going along at about 10 beeps per second. And then when they detect an insect, they up the repetition rate to about 200 beeps per second because the insect, the bat sending out a beam of sound and the insect instinctively knows that to escape and get out of that, he has to throw himself out of that beam. Ah. So the insect will throw himself out or drop straight down to the ground or dive into a bush to try to get out of the bat's beam. Huh. And, uh, you can hear when they go from 10 to 200 beeps per second. And, uh, so I would hear them, what we call feeding buzzes fairly commonly. And then a few miles away, there are these huge searchlights that used to be used a lot more to guide people to attractions. You know, mm -hmm. you shine them up against the sky and, um, there were clouds going by and every now and then a searchlight would hit a cloud and bounce light back down to where we were. And immediately the bad activity would cease. Oh, wow. That's intense. I mean, to have that level of like reaction to it. So you could imagine in an area then that's maybe denuded of forests and you need the seed dispersal or pollination strategies there to make a healthy forest or area habitat function. You add lights to that, and suddenly, if, if it's that stark, bats probably aren't sticking around or staying there very long. Well, we're really changing the evolutionary pathways of lots of animals in the world. Sure. Uh, yellow lights that we use now. We used to use mercury vapor lights that uh, attracted insects, and the bats would come and feed on the insects that were more vulnerable because they were concentrated at the lights. Mm -hmm. Now with the yellow lights, we light the area at night, making it risky for bats to fly and stay ahead of owls, but uh, they don't get any benefit. There's no food attracted. Different species of bats respond differently to the presence of light. Some benefit, some don't benefit. I, in my experience, I'd say more, more often than not, now that we're using these yellow lights, bats are pretty much harmed uh, by too much light at night. That's a shame. And yeah, I mean, it goes beyond pollination and seed dispersal even. Like, I remember when I saw you talk, you showed this amazing image of sonar and it, you showed crop pests emerging and then the waves of bats going to feast on them. So 
I, I would say one of the biggest services outside of pollination and seed dispersal is pest control. I mean, they're eating a lot of insects that we definitely don't want hanging around our, our civilization or our crops. We, we'd be practically buried in insects or one <laughs> for bats at night. Uh, just, you know, here's something that I find very fascinating. Most of what we know about the value of bats in pest control is coming from studies done after the bats are already declared endangered. Oh. Bats are now recognized as the most endangered mammals of America. Wow. And even in that diminished status, we're finding them to be of great value. In the state of Texas, the, the Parks and Wildlife Department conservatively estimates that our bats save farmers approximately 1.4 billion dollars a summer that is monumental amounts of dollars i mean unfathomable amounts that we would have to spend in in absurd ways to even try to come close to that and there are now growing numbers of studies that are showing that uh bets really are making a measurable difference to agriculture in many kind of crops a study done a number of years ago concluded that bats were saving cacao growers in Indonesia, which produces, I think, about 90% of the world's chocolate, that uh, bats were saving cacao growers an estimated almost $800 million annually. Think of what that would do to the value of chocolate if they lost their bats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a study done just recently in Spain. Uh, we present a, a blog on our website about it by the person who did the study. If anybody's interested in seeing it, she concluded, I believe that bats were saving rice growers in Spain, approximately 72 pounds of rice per acre. Wow. That is. And there's another study done in the Mediterranean where they put up small bat houses strategically located around rice paddies and they actually reduced damage insect damage so much over a period of several years that they were able to quit using pesticides wow that is unheard of i mean that's remarkable that people are actually even willing to listen to that let alone try it those studies are cited on uh my website excellent and again i will have links in there so that people can access those readily but you know this brings up a good point you travel the world you talk to hundreds of thousands of people about these issues and many of which think they're being directly affected by you know their misconceptions about bats i'm just thrilled by how willing you are to go out and talk to these people and try to dispel these myths um you know is it been difficult for you over the years to learn how to come at come people with compassion? I, I know you have a, a really famous saying it's on some of your merchandise and it's something that's really stuck with me and, and really resonated with me. So let's talk a little bit about how you try to change perception and, and really work with people instead of trying to, as you say, win battles. One of my favorite stories you may have already heard, but I'll tell it briefly. Please do. I asked a Tennessee farmer for permission to study bats in his cave and he thought scientists killed bats when they studied them. He said, sure, I, he'd be very happy to have me study his bats and kill all of them while, if I could. Wow. And uh, instead of objecting and telling him that that was really bad, uh, I just thanked him for his permission and went into the cave. And while I was there, I 
noticed that the floor was littered with potato beetle wings hmm. and he was growing potatoes out in front. And so I picked up some of those wings and pretend a little innocence. And when I went out, I said, hey, I'm interested in what these bats are eating. Can you tell me what these are? And he looks and his eyes get big and he's, oh, them suckers eat, eat potato bugs? <laughs> How many do they eat? I said, well, they don't just eat potato bugs. I see you got corn over there. They eat corn earworm moths. You probably got some mosquitoes around. They eat them too. Well, how many bugs are they eating a night? I said, well, it'd be hard to count them, but uh, a colony your size probably eats about 100 pounds a night. 100 pounds? That's a lot of bugs. And I never, ever said one thing about that he needed to protect his bats or, <laughs> or about conserving them. When I came back the next time, I swear, if you'd have gone in there wanting to do anything negative to his bats, you'd have been off his property on the end of a shotgun. <laughs> I mean, he had, I don't know what kind of hillbilly calculations he'd made, but he'd decide that his bats were worth at least $5 a piece and he had 50,000 of them. So he was a rich man. Wow. That's amazing. I love that. I, to me, it's so good to hear because I think modern times we're so interested in winning these battles, trying to make this other person feel stupid and wrong and I think it's just hurting good conservation efforts in a lot of cases. We don't want to turn people off. We want to work with them, right? Right. Well, the first thing I had to learn in conserving bats was how to avoid confrontation and make friends. And, you know, people, it, it's discouraging to hear how often we hear that we've got to win a battle with this company or we've got to win a battle over a certain it seems to always be winning battles when we're trying to save the environment. And instead we need to be winning friends. What I found was that if ever, you know, when I first started my conservation efforts for bats, virtually every human in America thought bats were at least mostly rabid, if not all rabid, and mm. you had to watch out, they'd attack you. And everybody thought that I was stark raving crazy when I announced that I was resigning my tenured position in research to found a conservation organization solely for something people hate as bad as bats. Hmm. But, uh, what I found is that when the whole world seems to be against you, you're not going to win any battles, right? You got to win friends. And if you win enough friends, you don't need to win the battles. <laughs> And that's been the basis of my success all along. Just win enough friends and you don't need to win the battles. I love it. And I think that's a message that desperately needs to be heard. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about it and for doing everything you do for bat conservation. And so with that in mind, I love giving my audience some actionable items. How can people listening help you and your mission to protect bats around the globe? First of all, become personally well informed about the values of bats and especially how safely we can live with bats, the driving source of most intolerance in the world uh, is fear. I can document where people have poured kerosene into caves and lit it on fire and killed up to millions in a single incident. Uh. I was in a cave in a country a few years ago where I went there to photograph a big emergence because there was supposed to be such a big colony in the cave. I got there and it was sealed shut. 
they'd sealed it shut with the bats inside, killing who knows, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. Uh, and uh, they'd all been killed just because somebody suggested that the bats might be diseased and cause somebody to get sick. And no one had ever, you know, they didn't know of a single person who had ever gotten sick from those bats. But uh, just the idea that it might happen was all it took. Yeah. It's kind of like, let's say I came knocking on your door tomorrow and I'm selling insurance against meteorite strikes. (laughs) I mean, you'd know enough about the rarity of meteorite strikes to probably call the police and (laughs) report a fraudulent salesperson. Sure. But people don't know enough about bats that when somebody tells them that, that bats can bite you without you even knowing it. I mean, that, that's a big moneymaker in America. Mm-hmm. Health departments are people in the health departments themselves usually don't know what they're talking about when it comes to bats. And they'll tell you, you know, if you say a bat flew by me last night and I'm not sure they'll, they'll tell you, you need to get vaccinated. They'll say, well, you know, it probably didn't bite you, but here's the thing. Bat bites are tiny and you can't tell if you've been bitten. And if we're wrong and we decide you weren't bitten when you were, you're going to die a horrible death. Jeez. So right now, rabies treatment in America, post-exposure, is running anywhere from $10,000 to $50,000. It's very lucrative to scare people about rabies and bats. The reality is that only one to two people annually die of rabies from a bat in all the U.S. and Canada combined. And those are people normally who have picked up a sick bat, been bitten, and then Mm -hmm. didn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, in my entire life of studying bats worldwide, often surrounded by millions, I've still never, ever been attacked by a bat. And all people have to do to be safe is don't go around picking up sick animals and assume that a bat that can be caught and handled is sick. Yeah. That's a pretty good rule of thumb for all mammals, really any animal. (laughs) Yeah. I once uh, spoke at a international rabies conference and uh, I started out my talk by pointing out that I knew that a lot of them uh, viewed bats as quite dangerous because sources of rabies. And I asked them, I said, how many of you have a dog at home? (laughs) And a lot of them raised their hands. And I pointed out that uh, between 40 and 45 people a year in the U.S. alone die of dog attacks. You know, not dog disease, but outright attacks. So then I quickly said, well, but don't get me wrong, I'm... I don't mean to prejudice anybody against dogs. That would be really hypocritical (laughs) in a society where our spouses kill us off probably a thousand a year. (laughs) So if you're brave enough to own a dog and get married, you're probably brave (laughs) enough to have bats in your yard without fear. I love it. Yeah. I've got an active bat colony behind my place and it is, it's just a joy. I've never once had any bad luck with them. And in fact, uh, I, they bring us more joy than, most animals in our neighborhood, so I'm I'm for it. <laughs> I have a friend near here who is a pecan grower, and uh, 
he put up some bad houses, testing them to see if he could reduce pests in his pecan orchards. And he's gotten so fascinated by his bats. He now says that whether they're a value or not, he's tickled pink that he put up his houses because it's, he says his only complaint is he doesn't get any sleep anymore because he's staying up late to watch them come out and getting up early to watch them go home. Oh, that's great. I love it. And you never know who you're going to turn on to that. And so with that in mind, there's a bunch of resources on your website. Uh, is there a ways that people can help Merlin Tuttle's bat conservation? Well, one obvious way is to donate or join. Uh, we have memberships. And one of the advantages of join, I, joining, I just mentioned this friend with his pecan orchards. We've had two workshops there that members could uh, attend where for several days they actually go out, watch hundreds of bats come out of the bat houses at night, put up nets and listen with bat detectors. And the orchardist himself was amazed to find that uh, he actually had eight species of bats in his orchard wow. even before he put up bat houses. And we've got a member trip uh, scheduled for February. Uh, going to Thailand to see Kaochong Kron Cave where year, 40 years ago I convinced the monks that owned it that they'd make a lot of more income selling back one of fertilizer if they hired a game warden to protect the bats from poachers. They did and sales went from $12,500 a year to now 200000 a year. Ooh. And <laughs> not only that, but as the bat numbers increased, there's been a study by entomologists that it's a peer-reviewed published study in a journal that shows and 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 you can find these studies we cite these things on our website in that study they estimated conservatively that just in controlling one kind of insect pest those bats were worth three hundred thousand us dollars annually amazing our website has almost endless resources where you can not only get information, but get links to the scientific papers that came to those conclusions. So you don't have to guess as to whether we knew what we were talking about or not. <laughs> and uh, we, we we offer quite a variety of workshops and opportunities. Uh, a couple times a year, people come to Austin to go out on a bat float with me and we go down the river watching the million and a half bats come out of Congress Avenue Bridge. But one of the things you can do as much as anything by keeping up on your own knowledge about bats, it's amazing how many, how much good you can do just influencing people you meet every day. I talked to somebody, I think it was yesterday, who had a great idea. He takes, he, he likes bats and photographs them. And on plane flights, he'll purposely open his laptop and start editing cute bat pictures. <laughs> he says people can almost never resist saying, what kind of animal is that? And then, you know, they're really curious. And then when he says bats, he gets into a whole long drawn out discussion of uh, why they're important. And I have met people on planes that ended up worth a million dollars for bat conservation. Wow. Uh, just be prepared with the knowledge. Bats are incredibly interesting. 
uh, wear, wear a, a bat t-shirt. We have a variety of them or one of our bat hats. Uh, and people will comment, Ooh, you like bats? <laughs> uh, and they're golden opportunities to educate people. I hear stories all the time of how huge progress is made just by meeting somebody on a plane or in an elevator and having them ask about bats. And if you're well informed, uh, you know, I, I can give a 15 to 30 second pitch to almost anybody relevant to what their best interests are. Uh, you know, you like macadamia nuts, you know, bats, are the primary predators of the most costly pests of macadamia nuts. If it wasn't for bats, the price <laughs> of these nuts would go up. Uh, you know, whatever it is, if you're prepared with the knowledge, bats are incredibly fascinating animals. And uh, you can go to our website and download pictures of bats. I have thousands of photos of bats of hundreds of species doing all kinds of things, anything bats do just about <laughs> put some of those on your phone and uh, show them to people. I, I can captivate almost anybody with a few pictures on my phone and a few facts. So there's a lot that you can do, even if you don't have a bat cave, you know, you putting up a bat house can be, quite an effective way to educate your neighbors. Hmm. People are always getting curious, you know, what is that? It's not a birdhouse. <laughs> it's not got a bottom. <laughs> and uh, then you tell them about bats. Oh, you, you're not afraid of having bats around? No, they never bothered us. They just, we have fewer mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, if you, if you hate mosquitoes, you better love bats. Uh, there's so many ways to help spread the word just on your own, but you might have a lot of fun coming on one of our workshops where you actually learn to go out and study bats and uh, photograph them and do the things that we do to help save bats. Phenomenal. Well, again, thank you for everything that you do. I will put up links to all of those so people can find them re really easily. But Merlin, this has been phenomenal. Thank you for helping bats. Thank you for talking about bats and for taking time today to tell us a little bit more about how bats interact with plants. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Matt. It's people like you who make me so effective. Imagine <laughs> how many people I would have reached today if it hadn't been for you and, a, <laughs> and another. This is the second uh, of these programs I've done today. But between the two of you, I've probably easily reached 50,000 people uh, without people like you getting, helping me get the message out. I'd be talking to myself. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. And again, thank you for everything that you've done. It's a, it's a truly an inspiration and uh, the world thanks you for it. Well, thank you for all you do. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, Matt. All right. Amazing stuff. Those were some huge, huge numbers when it comes to cash savings that bats provide people around the globe. They're also amazing animals. They're so much fun to watch, and they deserve far more respect than they've been given throughout human history. As always, please go over to the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where you'll find links to Merlin Tuttle's bat conservation, and I really, really hope you'll consider pitching in to support his efforts. 
It's not easy sticking up for such maligned animals, but we need people like Merlin, and his facts are just as interesting as the stories he tells and his methodologies. It's all about, like he said, making friends rather than winning battles. And I think we could all learn a lesson there if we believe in something. Before I let you go, I do have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Steven and Nock. Both of them signed up to support the podcast at the producer credit level over at patreon.com slash plants. So they are doing the maximum each month to keep this show up and running. And as I said at the beginning of the show, I can't do this without support. So thank you to them for pitching in. And of course, thank you to everyone that supported it throughout the years. I couldn't be doing it without you. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.